0: If you're not sleeping well, you're not alone. When I do sleep, the dreams I'm having right now are strange and fragmented. It's the stress. It's the bizarre and inexplicable position we find ourselves in right now. Many of us are alone, but we are together in worry and apprehension and isolation. Health concerns, financial issues, loneliness, a lack of control, a lack of guidance, a lack of direction. Honestly, it's no wonder that sleep is elusive, and when it finally arrives, it's not as restful as it could be. But friends, you are not alone. You are not alone in your worry or your fear Not if you are flattening the curve in your home or out working each day making sure that we are safe, fed, and cared for. You know, I struggle with anxiety on good days, and the current situation has me feeling numb and tired. I'm also perpetually hungry and filled with guilt every time I dip into the pantry for half a dozen Nilla wafers or a spoonful of peanut butter between meals. And if you're listening to this, you should be safe and comfortable. You should be ready to sleep, because this episode is a dreamcast, a change from the usual doom, gloom, murder, and chaos that I share. The whole point of this episode, well, aside from giving me a history lover a chance to write about something that I wouldn't usually feature on the podcast, is to give you the listener. Something to listen to that isn't all murder and dread. I'm not shaming anyone. I've fallen asleep to my fair share of true crime podcasts. But for the sake of my mental and emotional health, I've started listening to other podcasts and the occasional audiobook when it's time to sleep. If you've listened to Don't Talk to Strangers, you know that when I was little, I lived with my grandparents off and on for a couple of years. And my grandfather was this amazing, brilliant man, but he was perpetually busy. During the day, he worked for Chrysler Automotive, and he also taught history at the University of Detroit. In addition to that, he was working on his doctorate at the University of Michigan. And. He also did all of the home-related things that men with grown children were responsible for in the 1970s. My grandfather, he and I were very close, and he was always talking to me about history, and his great and enduring love was the Civil War. You see, when he was a boy, his own grandfather, a Civil War veteran, would tell him stories of the battles, the marching, the hunger and the deprivation faced by soldiers. And this fuels a deep appreciation of history and a strong desire to learn more about what his grandfather endured. And his grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, he was about 50 years old when he married a woman in her 20s, and they had two children. One of those children was my great-grandfather. And as my grandfather learned to love history from his grandfather, I learned a love of history from my grandfather. And I tried to appreciate the Civil War the way that he did, but that period in history never really drew me in. I've always been more interested in modern history. I'm curious about how the events of the last 50 or 60 years influence who we are and what we are doing today. That's one of the reasons I like true crime stories from Michigan. It's not just the crime itself, but looking at what was taking place in the area when the crime happened. So I get to treat myself to a history lesson on that community. A lesson I may or may not include in the episode itself. So these dreamcasts, and I hope to do at least one or two of them a month. They're going to be focused on history. The story itself, it isn't important. What is important is that you are led, happily and contentedly, toward a night of good sleep. Today's story is an artifact from Michigan history. A tale of creativity, ingenuity, and splendor. We are headed across the pond, as they say going back in time more than 100 years to where this story truly begins. In Great Britain and France during the 19th century, there were a series of public exhibitions to demonstrate new products, new advances in manufacturing, architecture, fashion. Whatever was new and exciting in Paris or in London was displayed for the public to see and marvel at. These exhibitions would go on for weeks and months, long enough for people to travel to the location and see and experience. Having your items, your creations, your imagination displayed at the exhibition, this was a sign of success, ingenuity, and creativity. The Great Exhibition took place in London in 1851. Prince Albert was one of the organizers, and the attendees included Lewis Carroll, Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens, Queen Victoria, and Samuel Colt, among others. And I'm glad that Queen Victoria showed up. It would have been extremely awkward if the wife of the organizer, in this case Prince Albert, didn't at least make an appearance. The exhibition had a rather clunky title by modern standards. Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations. And speaking of Prince Albert, I watched the first season of Victoria on PBS. It was really interesting. I didn't know much about her or her husband for that matter. But after watching... Learning that Albert was behind this event does not surprise me in the least. You know, one time I accidentally referred to them as Albert and Victoria in front of a friend who was British, born and raised. He was deeply offended and he quickly corrected me, so I've been very careful not to make that mistake again. So... These exhibitions, they demonstrated the manufacturing and creative ability of the nation, and they were held in Europe and the United States for decades. 1851, London 1853, New York 1862, London 1876, Philadelphia 1889, Paris 1893, Chicago 1897, Brussels. 1900, Paris. 1901, Buffalo. Okay, Buffalo? I just need to laugh at that because really? Buffalo? Okay. In 1904, St. Louis. In 1915, San Francisco. And then there were gaps in the exhibitions in the U.S. and Europe because of the American Civil War and then the onset of World War I, By the 1930s, there was a shift in the format of the exhibitions. From 1933 through 1934, the World's Fair was held in Chicago. The fair marked the city's centennial and was titled, A Century of Progress. The motto of the fair was, Science finds, industry applies, man adapts. And this fair leads us to the topic of today's Dreamcast, because, as you all know, I am a Detroit girl at heart, and I have a soft spot for Detroit history. And automotive history? Well, that's Detroit history. They are intertwined. So in this episode, we are talking about the Ford Rotunda, which made its debut at the Chicago World's Fair in 1933. Now, The Henry Ford Company was founded in November 1901, and in 1902, he sold the company to Cadillac Motors, but Ford kept the rights to his name, which seems pretty smart. In August of 1903, he launched Ford Motor Company with help from multiple investors, including John and Horace Dodge. Ford built a few cars a day at their plant on Mack Avenue. And by 1915, Henry Ford refined the assembly line concept, which revolutionized how cars were constructed. This idea of a rolling assembly line changed production in several areas of business, not just automotive. This sped up car production, but led to an unforeseen problem paint on the cars just wouldn't dry quickly enough. In fact, there was only one shade, black, that dried in the short time needed. And while at one point Ford offered his vehicles in multiple colors, by 1914 only Japan black was available because of its quick drying time. When better paints become available more than a decade later, you started to see the cars offered with a variety of color options. To paraphrase Henry Ford, you can have the car in any color you like, as long as it's black. And a lot of people don't like Henry Ford, and I get that. I'm not going to defend Henry Ford. He was, to be clear, a deeply problematic person. But this isn't the time to get into his many, many flaws. In the late 1920s, Ford learns that the World's Fair is coming to Chicago in 1934, and Ford turns to renowned architect Albert Kahn to create a magnificent and engaging Ford Motor Company building for the event. The Ford Exposition Building, as it was called, is taken apart and shipped back to Dearborn when the fair ends. In Dearborn, the Exposition Building is reassembled using Indiana limestone and other more permanent materials. The Rotunda is located on Schaefer Road, across from what is now known as the Ford Motor Company World Headquarters. Schaefer Road has its own slice of Dearborn and Detroit history. In the 1860s, it was the site of Six Mile House, owned by Joseph Schaefer, and named so because it was located six miles from Detroit City Hall. Six Mile House operated as an inn, a tavern, and a restaurant until Prohibition forced its close in 1918. With Six Mile House closed, Schaefer changed his methods and opened the Schaefer Box Lunch Company, catering the lunchtime needs of workers at the Ford Rouge plant. Schaefer also sat on the board of directors for the Springwell's Home Savings Bank. Eventually, Joseph's son or grandson, I'm not completely sure, and I'm not sure that it matters for our purposes today, but... One of the Schaeffers hired a noted local architect, Lewis Camper, to design a large stone multi-story building there. This Mayan-inspired granite and terracotta complex was a large building by Detroit standards and was a looming presence in small town Dearborn in the first half of the 20th century. In 1960, the Schaefer family sold the building for one million dollars. And over the years, it had many tenants, including Kresge, Dearborn Bank and Trust, Winkleman's, Sanders, and Joanne Fabrics. Back to the site selected for the Rotunda. The Schaefer Road location allowed the Rotunda nearly 14 acres of land. Plenty of space for Henry Ford to have recreations built of famous roads from throughout history. The Appian Way from ancient Rome. The Oregon Trail, the Grand Trunk Road, which wound its way through Asia, Japan's Tokaido Road, and a reproduction of the early wood plank version of Detroit's own Woodward Avenue. These roads were lined with the newest Ford vehicles that visitors could ride in. If you visited the Rotunda, you could take a chauffeured trip through history in a new Ford automobile The Ford Motor Exhibition Hall was now called the Ford Rotunda, and it didn't look much like the Exhibition Hall from Chicago. The Rotunda was very tall, and its limestone walls staggered to resemble gears in an assembly. Inside the building was a wide and sunny courtyard, and the walls of the Rotunda were painted with grand murals. The Rotunda had five doors across its entryway, And above each door was a sculpted white figure in bas-relief set against a blue panel. The five figures represented beauty, power, speed, safety, and thrift. On either side of the rotunda, long wings of the building spread out two to three stories high. And the rotunda was equipped with a 388-seat state-of-the-art movie theater furnished with blue leather seats. Inside, visitors could see a 20-foot revolving globe, the Ford World, with Ford locations and properties highlighted across the globe. These locations included India, Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, Australia, Great Britain, Europe, and the Philippines. If the whole dimensional, rotating, illuminated globe concept sounds crazy and amazing and over-the-top, that's because it was. The grand opening of Ford's Rotunda took place May 14, 1936, with dozens of movie stars, celebrities, politicians, and heads of state attending. Musical entertainment was provided by Fred Waring and his band... If you're wondering why his name sounds familiar, Fred Waring was the financial backer and investor in the first electric blender. By 1954, a million Waring blenders had been sold, and scientist Jonas Salk he used a Waring blender to create his polio vaccine. Back in Dearborn, the Ford Rotunda was a huge tourist attraction, and during World War II, it was close to the public— the Rotunda was used as a school for the Army Air Corps, with a barracks established nearby. The spacious movie theater was used to entertain soldiers. After the war in the early 1950s, in anticipation of opening the Rotunda to the public once again, a massive update of the building is planned. This included covering the open courtyard in the center of the building. But... The rotunda could not handle the weight of a traditional roof, so putting a top on it was going to be complicated. Ford called on noted architect and inventor Buckminster Fuller, who designed an 18,000-pound geodesic dome to top the rotunda. Not only did this give the building a roof, it was an additional draw to an already interesting and engaging location. In the 1950s, the Ford Rotunda was one of the most popular tourist attractions in the nation. How popular was it, you're asking? Well, Niagara Falls, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the Smithsonian Institution, and the Lincoln Memorial. Those are the only United States tourist attractions that saw more visitors than the Rotunda. Yellowstone National Park, Mount Vernon... The Washington Monument and the Statue of Liberty were less traveled than the Rotunda. In 1958, Ford used the Rotunda to display what was possibly their worst automotive miscalculation the Edsel. The Edsel was a commercial flop. You see, a lot of time, energy, and planning went into the launch of the Edsel. The release date, known as E Day, was September 4th, 1957. And a month later, on October 13th, they purchased prime-time TV space to run The Edsel Show. But even that didn't help. People didn't like the styling. They also weren't drawn in by the four model options, the Corsair, Citation, Ranger, and Pacer. The Edsel had wagon options, the Bermuda and the Villager, And despite offering many options for a variety of drivers, the car wasn't selling. In late 1959, it was announced that it would be discontinued and less than 3,000 1960 Edsels were produced. The Edsel was a huge failure, and this is after Ford Motor Company poured $400 million into the project. That's nearly $2 billion in today's money. Now, the name of the vehicle, the Edsel. This was the name of Henry Ford's only child, his son, who was named after Henry Ford's close childhood friend, Edsel Rudiman. Edsel Ford worked for his father, and one of his goals was to modernize the company. Edsel is known for creating the Mercury division of Ford Motor Company, as well as converting the Ford Willow Run plant For bomber production during World War II. Around 1940, Edsel pushed Willow Run to build one bomber per hour for years, and it was during the war that Edsel became gravely ill, likely from the stress and pressure of his responsibilities. The nation was at war, and he took his efforts very seriously. Edsel Ford died of stomach cancer at his gross eel home in 1943, leaving behind a legacy of not just cars, but art. The famous Diego Rivera Industrial Mural at the Detroit Institute of Arts, they were commissioned by Edsel Ford. Edsel Ford also funded exploration, including the 1926 flight by Admiral Richard Byrd over the North Pole. When Interstate 94 opened in Detroit, it was named the Edsel Ford Freeway. Now, back to Dearborn. Back to the rotunda on Schaefer Road. And listeners, this is a place I've seen mentioned many times, but I didn't know anything about it. And I was curious, so here we are. I'm telling you about the rotunda and satisfying my own curiosity... While you, dear listener, drift off to a satisfying and well-deserved night of sleep. Growing up in Metro Detroit, I've heard stories of the grand and glorious holiday decor on display at the Rotunda. For people of this generation, born between, say, 1935 and 1952, no holiday season was complete without a visit to see extravagant displays of holiday festivities. The Christmas Fantasy began December 15th, 1953, and it only became more lavish from there. The giant Christmas tree, nearly 40 feet tall, was a spectacular sight, and Christmas fantasy became more elaborate each year. The theme in 1954 was Storybook Land, with Hansel and Gretel, Little Bo Peep, and Humpty Dumpty as just some of the features. In 1958, the fantasy boasted a half-inch-per-foot-scale 1,500-piece miniature circus with 800 animals, 30 tents, and 435 toy figurines of circus performers and customers. And the nativity scene was always an important part of each year's display, with a life-size manger and a glowing star suspended high above. In all, nearly six million people visited the Christmas fantasy during the nine years it was held at the Rotunda. The Christmas fantasy was so popular and so successful that they produced a yearly Rotunda Christmas book. If you're curious, you can look these up on eBay. In 1955, the book's theme was rabbits, and there are dozens of drawings of rabbits in suits, elf costumes, Santa hats, There's even a top hat-wearing rabbit bearing gifts. It's really quite sweet. In addition to lavish holiday decorations presented for the families of Ford Motor Company employees, Santa was on site for children to visit. Choirs from local churches were invited to sing and entertain visitors on the weekends. This was a truly magical holiday spectacle. I even inquired in a couple of local Detroit history groups for memories of Christmas at the Rotunda, and every response I received is basically, wow, how could I forget? Toys and scenes and animatronic displays and Santa and trees, basically, all the traditional holiday imagery a child could hope for. In the photos I've seen of the Rotunda at Christmas time, The children and their parents are dressed up. Boys in trousers and button-front shirts. Little girls in dresses and Mary Janes with white socks. A visit to the Rotunda was a holiday treat, and Ford took it seriously. In speaking with those who attended the Christmas Fantasy, if you were the child of a Ford Motor Company employee, you could select a toy at the end of your visit. One woman now about 70 years old, said that she always chose the tea set because with so many pieces, it felt like she got a lot. Others mentioned choosing dolls, some dressed in a fancy gown or even a bridal ensemble. Christmas fantasy was a huge undertaking, and holiday decorating and preparation started immediately after Halloween. The theme for each year was planned months in advance, and the entire facility was spruced up in anticipation of a barrage of holiday tourism. Each year was larger and more beautiful than the year before. The building was cleaned and prepared in anticipation of the busiest and most wonderful season of the year. On social media, I saw a comment from a woman whose father worked on the Christmas fantasy She said he was proud of doing something that brought happiness to so many people. On Friday, November 9th, 1962, more than 100 students from South Bend, Indiana, arrived at the Rotunda for a tour. Remember, there was more than artwork and cars at the Rotunda. The grounds held reproduced roads from various periods in history, and I imagine this tour was a great and highly anticipated field trip for students. I don't remember a school field trip being so exciting, but when I was a Girl Scout, our troop not only toured the Henry Ford Museum, we stayed in dormitories on the grounds and took full advantage of the indoor swimming pool. I remember walking along the edge of the darkened museum Seeing the shapes and shadows of all the displays in the quiet after the museum closed. Think that if my house had been closer to the Henry Ford, I would have taken a job there just to be near all of that history, but I digress. The Henry Ford Museum was founded one hundred years ago, and the collection of buildings, vehicles, ephemera, and memorabilia. It just keeps growing and expanding. If you aren't familiar with the Henry Ford, I'm going to share with you a small sampling of what they have on site. A recreation of Thomas Edison's Menlo Park Laboratory. The chair that Abraham Lincoln was seated in when he was shot. The bus that Rosa Parks was riding in when she refused to move. They have a camp bed used by President George Washington and a Sikorsky helicopter you can also see vintage signage from McDonald's, A&W, and White Castle. And when I say signage, I mean the great big signs that are either erected in front of or affixed to the front of the buildings, things that are 15, 20 feet tall. In the late 1930s, Henry Ford had the Wright Brothers Bicycle Shop and Residence moved to Dearborn from Dayton, Ohio, you can stroll through the building like it's 1905. The Henry Ford is a beautiful hodgepodge of all of these wonderful forgotten items. Then there is the Rouge Factory Tour. You can see what it was like 110 years ago, the assembly line. I could spend days just looking at everything they have, When you realize there is so much more going on behind the scenes, it is truly a wonderful place. But back to that November Friday, November 9th, maintenance workers are using heated sealant on the roof of the building. Michigan winters are tough, and flat roofs require special maintenance. The heated liquid caught fire, which quickly spread to the Buckminster Fuller geodesic dome atop the rotunda, Within minutes, the building was engulfed in flames. Fortunately, the school children visiting from Indiana were on their way out of the building, and employees were able to exit the structure safely. The entire Dearborn Fire Brigade arrived attempting to control the blaze, but the Ford Rotunda was a total loss. Online, you can see photos of the building, engulfed in flames as onlookers stand across the street, watching in hopeless horror as the rotunda is left in ruins. Around us was the empire started by Henry Ford. We looked at the empire around us and at its dying queen below. Then, we went home. James M. Lysette reporting for the Detroit News as the rotunda burned, November ninth, nineteen sixty two. In the days following the fire, the community was grateful that no one was killed or seriously injured, but they were saddened to learn that Ford would not be rebuilding the rotunda. The building, which stood just north of I ninety four at Schaefer, It exists now only in old photos and the memories of those who visited the space. Those children who gazed in wide eyed wonder at the globe that showed the reach of Ford Motor Company. The children that cruised ancient roads that were rebuilt in suburban Detroit to be ridden on in the newest, shiniest Ford motor cars. The families who dressed up to tour the Christmas fantasy. Little girls marveling at a magnificent display of baby dolls in fancy dress, and the boys gazing wide-eyed at what was being built in Santa's workshop. Children who took home dolls and baseballs and tea sets, children who read Christmas books and recall visits to Santa, they remember the gloriously decorated trees and the sounds of choirs singing holiday songs. And as long as they remember, they still have the Rotunda. While the glory of the Rotunda at the holidays was only around for nine years, it lives on in their memories and photos and keepsakes of that time. The Rotunda is gone. It's been gone almost 60 years, far longer than it existed. But it is still here. As long as we remember something, as long as it exists in our mind's eye, it is still real. It is both lost forever and with us always. Sweet memories of childhood, of history, innovation, creativity, art, and beauty. There are some who think I spend too much time examining the past pulling at threads, digging at memories, searching for links and connections from years or decades ago. I believe it all still exists, even those things that are lost, because someone remembers. They remember those little moments, the taste of cinnamon gum during your first kiss all those years ago. The sound of your grandmother's voice as she cautioned you away from the road. The way that paper plate of cookies felt in your hand, you know the cookies prepared by your great aunt. And the way you peeled back green cellophane to sneak a cookie from the plate late at night. The crush of carpet underfoot as you stomped to your bedroom, wanting to stay up late and sulking because it's bedtime and the dry twist of laces as you tightened your skates before hitting the rink. All of these things still exist, even if you experience them only while you sleep and dream. You are safe and warm in your bed, comforted, comfortable, relaxed, and deserving of good things. And I hope that you enjoyed this visit to the Rotunda, this time spent with a slice of Detroit history wandering through the childhood of people that are older now. People who have their own memories to reflect on. Memories they were happy to share on social media. So many people pulled out old photos and told stories and thought about their parents and their siblings. All impossibly young and vibrant and healthy back in 1958 or 1955, or whenever it was that a visit to Santa and a gift so carefully selected left you with a heart filled with happiness and a head filled with the sweetest of dreams. Good night, sleep well, and please be safe.